Greetings! Here we are, all the way to episode 20 of Hear Her Sports. I'm Elizabeth Emery. It's such an absolute pleasure to have Heidi Skolnick on the show. She's a real powerhouse in the field of nutrition. She works at the Women's Sports Medicine Center at Hospital for Special Surgery in New York City. It's the first of its kind, focusing on the female athlete and understanding those specific needs. Her own company, Nutrition Conditioning, oversees the Performance Nutrition Program at School of American Ballet and the Juilliard School of Performing Arts. She has worked with the Knicks, Giants, and Mets, as well as with individual professional athletes in a wide range of sports. She is the author of Grill Yourself Skinny and co-author of Nutrient Timing for Peak Performance and The Reverse Diet, Lose Weight by Eating Dinner for Breakfast and Breakfast for Dinner. And she writes for national magazines, gives presentations, has been on radio, TV, and now this podcast. Find out more about Heidi and her practice in the episode notes on hearhersports.com. There you will also find links to purchase all her books through the podcast's Amazon affiliate program. I know Heidi from my New York City racing days. I used to ride across the George Washington Bridge to get to her New Jersey office. We reminisced for a while, which you won't hear, and then got right into the science of nutrition. Science is such a fundamental aspect to her practice and why I liked working with her and why I've kept track of what she's been doing over the years. And so let's get started. Here's Heidi. Well, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is because I remembered how focused you were on the science, the scientific basis of nutrition. And so I want to start with just asking you more about that. You know, what does that mean and why is it such an important and fundamental part of what you're doing? Well, I am science-based. I mean, I come from a science background and and the science of nutrition makes the difference between being able to just make a claim and you know, fact is a bit strong because we keep learning different things and we know how to study things in a different way and there's new ways in which to investigate. And so I think there is still a lot of confusion out there because there's, as we learn more and are able to study things in a different way, we come up with some different conclusions. Having said that, there's still a difference going with what the science says versus what your whim is, having an N of one. You know, anecdotal. So because I did this and it worked for me, it's sort of like saying, yeah, smoking cigarettes is good because, you know, my aunt smokes cigarettes every day and she lived to 100. <laughs> right. So that that doesn't work, even though that may be true that your aunt smokes cigarettes and lived to 100. That doesn't mean the conclusion, therefore, is that smoking cigarettes is good for your health. And so we have to be really careful with both interpreting false science in this world of fake news, uh, not whatever, you know, like <laughs> understanding what's the difference. And, and because people, for, for where I come from, it's also for those who are trying to follow that science and that advice, they're making great effort. And you don't want to be putting your effort in a direction that isn't going to help lead to your desired outcome. Don't, it's not worth that, right? It's, it's hard. Life is hard enough. Right. Well, how do you counter, you know, people, clients that come to you and say, you know, I've been doing this, you know, low carb or, you know, whatever sort of popular diet they come in with, and it's been really successful? And they probably wouldn't come see me because they already (laughs) have success. So it's usually what happens is I tried this really low carb thing and 
I started binging or I had such headaches or I couldn't function or, you know, or I did, I lost weight, but I couldn't think anymore. I was yelling at my kids. I couldn't get through my spin class or, you know, if they're performing at a higher level, you know, so there's other, or I started getting breakdown injuries or I lost my period, you know, or whatever it is. And so they're coming to me because it didn't work for them. Right. Right. And then I could talk to them about why maybe it didn't work or what else we could try. But if something's working for somebody, then I will tell them if it's working for you. Great. I mean, I'm never going to argue with someone's experience. It is their, their, they are, they're masters of their own body. But what I can tell them is what my experience has shown me and what the science says. So the science says if, if there's science on that, or sometimes people are doing it and there isn't science. I'm like, okay, well, it's working for you. Then that's fine. But the science tells me if you continue on this track, this is what may happen. And then here's the information and you decide for yourself and you'll see as you go along. And if you begin to get these signs or symptoms, maybe you can connect it back to this is because I've been doing this. Let's uh, start by defining some sort of defining terms so we're all on the same page. Can you define carbs, proteins, anything else that you think is worth talking about? And also, I know that you're into sports nutrition, so maybe define athlete or define the clients that you most work with? Ooh, do I want to define whoever wants to say they're an athlete? Is that not, that's not good enough? It's no, that's good enough for me. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, because it's at different levels and that's really what the key is. It's not whether you want to define yourself as an athlete. It's whether or not it's how you're eating to fuel what you're doing. And so the demands based on what you're doing change. And so if you're working a certain number of hours a week, a certain volume, a certain intensity, you your fuel may need to change. And if you're working at a higher level, a higher intensity, a higher volume, your fuel needs will change. And if it changes over the course of, you know, off season, preseason, during season, your fuel needs change or the proportion of those nutrients might change or the timing of your nutrients might change, you know, in my my personal business name is nutrition conditioning for life performance because it's kind of recognizing that even somebody who's sitting at their desk all day has certain needs it's sort of the marathon of life but of course it's not the same as someone who's actually running a marathon so you have to adjust and we look at it and you evaluate it based on these metrics of you know met output that's the science of it, you know, the metabolic equivalence of how much work are you doing, how many calories are demanded to do that work. We used to think in nutrition, in sports nutrition, it was really based on fueling, and there was so much emphasis on endurance athletes. I mean, there still is, but we've gone so much beyond just being able to fuel for the sport to look at recovery and muscle repair, protein synthesis, at looking at, you know, immune function, hydration. There's so much more lifestyle. What about metabolic risk and thing, you know, health and well-being? So there's there's so much more to it now than there used to be. And then the emerging sciences of sort of precision nutrition and nutrigenomics and nutrigenetics and how that may impact even in the sports world. You know, so it's really interesting how how the science keeps evolving and our understanding, our application, um, our desire for it shifts. You touched on something that I really was interested in from your book, Nutrient Timing for Peak Performance. You talked about fuel versus nutrition, which I thought Mm. was totally fascinating. It's so applicable to anyone. Right. So nutrition 
is what your body, you know, what the total wellness of your body. So we eat food. Well, we eat food for a lot of reasons. There is celebratory enjoyment, pleasure, and we don't want to take that out that out of the equation. Um, but the nutrition part is right where we're really providing for our bodies what it needs to to sustain itself from the cellular level all the way up to the muscular level. So that's a total picture. But when we're looking about fueling, which is sort of right or like, do you have the energy to get through your your bike ride? Do you have the energy to get through a practice, through a run, through a swim, whatever it is you're doing? That's fueling. But fueling is only one piece of nourishment. I mean, without the fuel, you're bonking out. It doesn't matter. But we, But sometimes when you fuel yourself, we don't care about nutritious part of it. And what I mean by that is if I sort of gave you a pound of sugar a day to eat, you would be, you would have a lot of, you would have energy. You wouldn't starve, but hypothetically you would die of malnutrition. So there's no nourishment in that sugar, but there is fuel in that sugar. Right. And I really like the example from the book about the bagel versus the beans and spinach with tomato sauce. (laughs) Right. And there's time for each of those because you're probably not going to have beans with tomato sauce right before you're ready to, you know, to go into a heavy duty practice or get on that bike or, you know, get in that water, you would have some bagel because you could digest it so easily. Right. So that's a few you would. There's a purpose and a time for that. It's just that that bagel is not going to nourish, provide all the nourishment you need. For me, I took it from the other standpoint of, wow, now I have an excuse to eat a bagel. Oh. <laughs> You don't really need an excuse. No, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So one of the things I do want to talk about is the definition of carbohydrates, going again back to sort of the popular low-carb diet. And I hear often people say they're not eating any carbohydrates, which makes me laugh all the time. Uh, Right. Although there are some people who who do get it and still do that. Yeah. I I use this example. I worked with the Giants for 18 years and I used to try to play games to make it a little more fun, nutrition games. And one year I was doing tic-tac-toe and, you know, these guys are competitive, right? Because it's competition. (laughs) And then we could say athlete. So no matter what you do, they bring that, they bring their game. And we're down two teams and these are the rookies. So they're new to this and there's two different teams and they're taking this seriously and we're down to a final square and they have to answer the question to win. And the question is name five carbohydrate sources. So the team huddles together, you know, and they're talking and then they come up and there's like kind of, you know, a little bravado going on and the other team saying, that's not fair. That's a giveaway. Of course they're going to get that. And so they start and they say, okay, carbohydrate sources, pasta. Okay, good. And say noodles, <laughs> uh, ziti, penne, spaghetti. I'm like, really? <laughs> you know, technically, they write that's five sources of carbohydrate, but really not what I was getting at there. So, but I've done that time and again, and it is true when I ask people what are carbohydrates, they tend to say bread, potatoes, and pasta. That's what they think of. When in reality, carbohydrate, all vegetables are carbohydrate. Now, granted, they're not very dense. There's not a lot in it, right? It's way more, uh, not as many calories. It's just not a dense source, but it is all carbohydrate. Milk and yogurt have carbohydrate in it. The lactose, that's the milk sugar. All, so that's, all fruits are carbohydrate. And they've been villainized totally inappropriately 
I think, over the years here in, in mixing up ideas. And then there are all the whole grains and beans and potatoes, sweet potato and white potato. Um, so, you know, rice. And so there's so much more. And if you don't know what, and then of course there's the sweets and white bread and white rice and, and other of those just starchier carbs. So if you don't know what a carbohydrate is, it's really hard to know if you're eating enough or too much, right? Based on what your goals are and what you're trying for. So yeah, that basic education, which seems kind of simple, really isn't when it when it comes to figuring out what to eat. That's something that recently strikes me. And I remember being struck before by this is that, you know, I've worked with you, I really like nutrition. So I read up on it. And yet I have no intuition, you know, when I really need to keep track of stuff, I need to calorie count. I mean, I use my fitness pal, I don't do it you know, like with a piece mm -hmm. of paper and pencil. But do you have, I mean, am I just a slow learner? Are there ways to get more in intuitive? <laughs> uh, I, I don't, I think it's really all over the place. You know, I don't, I think it is. I mean, they've even done some research with nutritionists, dietitians, where they asked them to guess the calorie count of certain foods and they couldn't get it right because portions are really hard to just eyeball especially when it's a mixed food. You know, it's one thing when it's just a piece of bread, but when you're talking about mixed meals. So I don't think that it's necessarily intuitive. And again, I think that's where it's a little tricky because food is something that's so primary to us. And to begin to make it something that we analyze and pick apart and make into, you know, you eat a piece of food, you don't, you're not thinking I'm eating nutrients, I'm eating, you know, what percentage of carbs, fat, protein is there in this food, you're like eating a meal, as well as should be, and it should be pleasurable and enjoyable, and it should taste good, and, but there's a mindfulness to when am I hungry, when am I full, is this enough, you know, there's a, there's this thing that I find fascinating, this difference between inhibition and restriction. So inhibition is normal and healthy where you kind of recognize this is enough. You know, I can't eat whatever I want as much as I want whenever I want. Like, of course, there's some point at which you say that's enough. And tomorrow I'll have more or later I'll have more. And restriction, which is I can't have this. This is bad. This is wrong. This is hurtful. This is, and it's making food sort of the enemy. And once people cross over to that space, I think it creates a lot of um, problems around, you know, guilt and shame. And it really begins to mess with your intuitive eating mechanism. Um, and I think using some of these tools that are out there can be really, really helpful for athletes or anybody who's trying to become aware because it's hard, because it isn't just necessarily intuitive to know which is a carbohydrate, protein, or fat, or how much is in that without huge education. But I also think that for some of, for probably for anyone, but certainly for teenage, for teenagers and specifically female teenagers, it can be really detrimental because you're, because you stop eating food and you start and you are just eating, you're, you're picking it apart to look at calories, protein, fat, carb, and that attention to that kind of detail, you lose the gestalt, you lose the intuitiveness of eating.
And you become detached from your body instead of better tuned in. Right. A lot of my athletes have talked about body image and the difficulty they've been having with that and have had for many years, even if they're very healthy. Right. Yeah. And I think that body image for athletes is such a tricky thing because there is the reality that managing your weight, uh, it can be an important part depending on the sport you play, um, can be more can be more important or less important. You, it's hard to separate the athlete from being a person in this world, which has the, our culture is weight-centric. And probably something we haven't talked about that you may not realize I'm doing now is I've taken the sports nutrition model and applying it to the artistic athlete. So I oversee the nutrition program at the Juilliard School of Performing Arts and at the School of American Ballet, which feeds the New York City Ballet. And clearly, these, these artistic athletes um, are required to also be very weight focus conscious because it's it's just like swimming and bodybuilding and um, dancing uh, gymnastics rather you know it's certainly a weight it's a visual so one of the big lessons is how do you learn how to manage your weight by eating as opposed to manage your weight by dieting and that's a completely different construct of how to approach your food so sometimes there's way too much emphasis on the weight management part versus the performance part because the whole point is of trying to manipulate your diet is to help you perform better or to your to, to your potential. It's not about manipulating weight necessarily as opposed to everything you're eating having to do with whether or not you're gaining or losing weight or muscle mass. And I think that becomes very destructive to performance often is managing your weight can be become very destructive to performance if you're doing it inappropriately and you're underfueling and overreaching and overtraining as a result of it. So it is a really, really tricky thing and it's a very primary part that starts early on in our lives and then I think just escalates as we get older and we can there are a lot of ways, you know, to to learn how we talk to ourselves and even each other and support each other in that. One of the things, too, the problem with the the negatives of underfueling and overtraining as a result of underfueling is it's not very immediate. You know, like months could go by and you're fine. And then, you know, all the all the bad months of eating catch up to you and it takes forever to to reconstruct. You're so right. And that's why I was saying before, sometimes somebody will come in and say that they're, they feel good, but I can see that they're under eating and I can say, okay, I know you're feeling good now, but this is what my experience would tell me, right? Is that if you continue on the track, like let's say with runners who think that, you know, the thinner they are, the faster they'll run. And what may in fact happen is at first there is sort of this uh, shift where they're doing better. And as they continue on that track, as they've lost a little bit of weight or eat a little bit less, there's some mechanisms that go on that may, may actually help them sort of overcome that initial, like if you think from an evolutionary standpoint, when the, you didn't just stop moving the minute you became underfueled, you, you, you know, your, your body's giving you a chance to like go out and hunt. <laughs> but then what happens is that it, it catches up. And so I'll see like juniors or senior runners in high school who are having their best years as they're under eating, get into school, can't 
can't keep that pattern going and end up with early, you know, career ending injuries or just all these different sequential injuries that keep them from being able to play or, you know, run. Yeah. Can you talk about that? One of the, another thing from your book that I was really fascinated with was how nutrition and fueling really impacts immunity, inflammation, and injury. And hormone, your whole hormonal system. So it's called, there's for female athletes, it's the female athlete triad. And then there's another called REDS, which is relative energy deficiency syndrome, recognizing that really it's not only female athletes. When, when this was first sort of discovered, we uh, recognize that a woman menstruating or stopping menstruation is not a normal part of being an athlete, um, even though it may happen to many women, that it in fact is a symptom and sign of underfueling. And now with REDS, they've sort of broadened it to understand that it's men too and that it's more than just bone health and hormonal uh, systems so that it's a it's a bigger picture it can affect your heart it can you know it affects all these different systems and so it is men and women too and and the idea is that when you're under fueled your body begins to shift in lots of different ways and one is the hormonal system and once your hormonal system shifts it affects every different system in your body so if we go back to what I was saying with the female athlete and the female athlete triad, it really starts at saying like if you're optimally fueled, you're getting the fuel you need to for your body to run and, and do what it needs to do. You're, you're producing your hormones. You're taking the, the, the nutrients you need in that well-rounded diet to lay down bone during a really crucial time because from, you really lay down your bone you know, we think of it growing in height, but then you're, you're creating the density and you only have until age 25 to 30 to do that. And then you've had your bone, your bone bank is sort of complete. And for the rest of your life, you're using that bone bank and you continue to want to take in calcium and other nutrients. So you don't have to take out of the bone bank, but you're not, you're no longer making deposits into the bone bank. And so when teenage girls under fuel, they're not, creating the bone density they need and that leads to stress fractures and early osteoporosis basically hmm. so as opposed to osteoporosis maybe happening in your 80s or 90s which even then it's not a given for everyone if they have good bone health but for not you know you may you may think of it as a geriatric disease it's actually a pediatric disease that manifests later in life that's interesting yeah and so that's all related. So, and when you're not getting the you're not getting the nutrients, you know, you're not getting calcium, vitamin D, what are the, you know the whole plethora of different nutrients you need, and you don't have the estrogen because you're under fueling, and you need the estrogen to help lay down that bone. And so, it's a combination of all these things that begin to interact and break down. You know, you're you're also not getting the nutrients you need to repair and recover. So, there's more breakdown injuries. You know, your whole body's more susceptible. Right. So when a client comes to you, well, I guess there's a couple of questions about that. How do clients find you? And when, when you start working with a client, like what's the first step? What do you, how do you work with them from the beginning? Okay. Well, sometimes they come to me from a referral from a doctor, right? And so they've already identified certain things that are going on. Other times they just come to me because they're curious, interested, or, um, and want to, perform their best or they already are having some symptoms without being able to identify exactly what it is where they feel like they've 
their performance is not improving and they're going backwards for some reason and recognize that maybe it's related to how they're feeling themselves. So, you know, we start with, I have clients keep a food journal for a few days and uh, over the weekend to see how different weekdays from weekends are and do a health history questionnaire and, and get us talk to them and get a sense of what their training is, what their training load is, what their goals are and what their history is. And then, in combination of looking at all of that, we get we get a picture of, and I'm I'm looking at total calories and intake and fuel, but I'm also looking at the nutrient timing. You know, how are they distributing those calories throughout the day? Because it used to be as long as you ate when you ate, you know, you ate whenever you ate, and it didn't really matter as long as you were getting what you needed. And now we know that how you distribute your calories throughout the day will also impact how your immune system, your glucose levels, your and therefore insulin levels, cortisol, um, your immune system from the sense of like when you eat vitamin C in the morning, you have an orange with your breakfast. That's great, but vitamin C doesn't hang out all day. So in the afternoon when there's some insult to your body, it needs to be fighting off, you know, where's those nutrients? Well, hopefully at lunch, then you also had some broccoli, which had some vitamin C in it. And I'm just using vitamin C as a marker of other, lots of other nutrients, right? Sure, and so sure. then you know, and then again at dinner, so you have some, right, you have some tomato sauce, which has vitamin C in it. So at each of those meals, you're providing your body for each, each nutrient, each, each food group provides different nutrients that you need for different reasons. And they, they're not interchangeable. So, you know, protein, let's say helps build and repair your muscles. Carbohydrate helps fuel your muscles. You know, fat is there for some of the hormonal things that go on and they're, they all do different things. And so you need all of that at every meal and through snacks throughout the day. And you can't just have it like in the morning, go, okay, I'm set or not have it all day and think <laughs> I have it at dinner. I'm good. Right. And right. so that's what we're learning more about this whole idea of nutrient timing, nutrient distribution. And then how do you fuel yourself? If you ate lunch at 12 and you're not training till after work or after school, you know, if it's after school, it's four o'clock. It's been four hours since you, it's after work. You might think you're leaving work at six and it ends up being 730 and you ate lunch at 12. Well, you just went seven, seven and a half hours. And now you're just going to get on the bike and ride for an hour or two. Like, of course, you, you're going to feel that. Like, what, of, co of course, that you, you wouldn't usually go that long without eating if you were just sitting at your desk, never mind expending all that energy. Right. So. How do you now time it so that you're well fueled for that afternoon workout, after work workout, or you know, train or first thing in the morning, whatever? And then about recovery, how long is it before you change, get dressed, and go back? And so, what's the timing of getting in that recovery meal, and how does that help you replenish your energy for the next workout and stimulate muscle so that it's counteracting the uh, breakdown that occurs and also the building that you want to happen and immune system? So, there's Again, all of these different reasons that go into creating a pattern of eating that support your ultimate goals of staying healthy, staying fueled, staying strong. And do you have, I mean, I, this is a huge topic and I know that you work with people for over months at a time, but if somebody, if one of the listeners is, is interested in sort of addressing their nutrition and their fuel, what, what would you recommend that they do? You mean other than seeking out uh, somebody in sports nutrition? Correct. <laughs> if they want to self-medicate. <laughs> <laughs> well, they can, start with, they can start reading some books that are out there. 
you know, there's there's several. Nancy Clark is one of the most classic um, sports nutritionists in the country. And she has this great book that's been around for years and years, and she keeps updating it. And that gives you a really great basis uh, of information to start from. Are there some general rules that, you know, active people can follow? One thing that you mentioned, for example, was timing of food. So for example, after workouts or during workouts, are there recommendations? Okay, so the general guideline is, you know, that that regular fueling of balanced meals. And if there, there's a thing called the athlete's plate, which is if you just think of a plate, a circle, and you take a quarter of it, that's your protein. Then you take another quarter, and that's vegetables. And then half of the plate is uh, starchy vegetables or starchy carbohydrates. Like if you want to just look at that with like fat kind of in there as part of your stir fry or you're adding that avocado or you're putting some nuts. And so if you kind of think of that and, and that, that carbohydrate, that half plate that's carbohydrate, that shifts based on how active you are. So if you're less active, you can increase the vegetable part. And if you're more active, you increase the carbohydrate part. So that quarter moves, that quarter and half moves um, as a general, that's like such a basic general guideline. And that you're eating throughout the day, never going more than three or four hours, that you think about that the closer to sort of gain time or, or, you know, practice time, exercise time, the smaller amount you eat and the purer the carbohydrate. So that's, I think that's pretty intuitive. Like we sort of said before, if you, if you haven't eaten, let's say you did, you had that 12 o'clock lunch and now it's six o'clock and you forgot to have your four o'clock snack. So then right before you start your workout, maybe you have a few pretzels or you have a squeezed applesauce, something that's very simple to digest, that this is not, that's that fuel versus nutrition. Like pretzels is not the healthy, it's not, it's not the most nutritious food, but it's fine. It's fueling you and you want something simple. You're not going to have beans right then. So that the further away you get from that, the larger you can have and the more mixed. So in other words, you can have a yogurt an hour before, a yogurt with nuts and fruit two hours before and it keeps expanding you know if it's three hours before you're having a meal three or four hours before so you want to fuel your workout and then after your workout have that recovery which is a mix of protein and carbohydrate and that is based on both your size and how intense the workout is the more intense the longer you might have more carbs but there's a minimum sort of of each and the same thing with protein although there's only so much protein you could absorb at once so the thing to remember about recovery is recovery begins when you end exercise and stops when you begin your next session. So what I mean by that is that recovery window isn't meant to be your full recovery. It just means that's when you're starting your recovery. But it's not all-inclusive. You can't have enough in that window to really replenish what you've depleted. You're, you're going to have up to 1.5 grams of carbohydrate per kilogram of body weight, blah, blah, blah. But you're having, you know, there's charts and things you can figure out. But you're having your, you know, so you're having your chocolate milk or your yogurt or your protein shake or whatever you're having right after. And then an hour and a half to two hours later, by the time you get changed and go and eat dinner, you know, you're having your, or your lunch or breakfast or whatever time you're working out in the day, you'll have your next meal and your next meal. And all of that's contributing to recovery. It's just that you're starting it in that window. And then you're continuing it. Right. And the window is 15 minutes or 20 minutes? So a half an hour. Got it. Okay. An hour, you know, but certainly within the hour. Right. And it, and if you miss that window, it doesn't mean your whole workout was for naught. Like, it's not like, <laughs> oh my gosh, now, like, forget it. It just means it'll take you a little longer to recover. You didn't maximize. 
the recovery, but it doesn't mean you're not going to recover. And, and that whole workout was not worth it. Right. Even though I just laid out that sort of very basic blueprint, um, and we didn't even talk about hydration in that, but understand that that may be manipulated based on who you are, what you're doing, what your goals are. So in other words, if you're an ultra endurance athlete, there are those who think that a higher fat diet and a low carb diet helps you to adapt to burning fat more um, for ultra endurance. But that doesn't mean I'd want a soccer player on that, that same diet, right? And so there are times you may manipulate this in, um, based on the type of activity you're doing because those two athletes are very different. Their systems are different. How they call upon their nutrient, you know, how, how their body metabolizes is completely different. And the demands that they need for their sport is different. One's more of a stop and, stop and go power. One's an ultra endurance. I mean, it's just, it's different. So you're not going to fuel the same. Old time training was just get out and go and go and go and go and go more. And now people are a little smarter about it's it's a little bit more based on high intensity, longer endurance. It's it's harder, easier days, and the, and the purpose of each training day is uh, determined based on again goals. But there, it's not always it's not all the same. And there's more cross training that goes on and strength training to support being a, an endurance event where it used to really be there were power athletes and endurance athletes and they never each each never did the other no mixing no mixing <laughs> and now we know it's good to mix but even then with a specific you know you're you might strength train differently if you're going for depending on where you are in your cycle of of training so yes your nutrient your your nutrient timing and your nutrient load and your you know might will alter based on the day but not as dramatically as people may think, because this is too general because we're talking about so many, there's such a range, right? Like if you're exercising for health and well-being, you may not even need to change your, your, your diet too much because the amount of calories you're burning might not alter so much. But if you're really talking about, you know, an 18-mile run versus a half-hour speed session, then yes, your calories are going to be different. But if it's hills versus, you know, distance, we'd have to look at volume and intensity in terms of calorie load. How much you're having during, like if you're going on a distance, you're, you might be consuming during, whereas you're not going to when you when you do shorter speed work. During cycling, I know that, you know, eating during is so important. Mm -hmm. I've gotten myself into trouble. I bet you have. I don't yes. think there's a cyclist out there who has not. <laughs> and you can also build your tolerance for that if it's something you're not used to and practice, just like you practice everything else, like practice fueling and, and hydrating during and see, you know, experiment. Like I, there are some things that we were saying before you can't tell for a long time, but there are other things you could feel immediately, like being depleted on a ride. You feel that immediately. Right. And fueling like one i'll just say you know what i've had athletes who are resistant because they're used to doing it one way and they they've achieved a great success doing it the way they've been doing it but they don't know how much better they could feel just because athletes are so good at ignoring their bodies and just working through like if they stopped just because it was uncomfortable they would never reach the level they reach and so learning what's uncomfortable versus pain is too different you don't want to ignore pain but you know their tolerance level is much greater than the average 
No question. That's part of what makes them able to train as hard as they do. So a lot of athletes I know can work through feeling depleted or not feeling as strong and still get it done. And it's amazing to see as they begin to shift and experiment with their diet, how much better they could feel, how they could do the same thing. But it's so much, I don't want to say easy, but it just, it doesn't take the same toll. It's just, it is, it's easier for them to do the same amount of work. And then of course there's, can they even do more work and a greater workload? But even if we don't shift their workload, the fact that that they feel better doing the same workload in and of itself is fantastic. Do you have a dramatic story of, of a big shift in an athlete really, I don't know, getting it, I guess? Yeah. I mean, I have, I mean, it, it happens every week in my practice, <laughs> not with every, not with every person, right. but every week, you know, I mean, it really, like I just got a, an email from an athlete who was saying, you know, thanks. I just went back to school and I did everything we talked about and she, this was a runner and she was just shocked at how much better she's feeling. And truthfully, I think we prevented her from going down the female athlete triad. Um, mm. And then, I mean, again, I'll tell you one with, uh, I was working with a quarterback um, who I can't mention who, but who was pretty good at what he did and, um, and had reached a fair amount of success having done it that way. And we talked about, I was going to say intermission. You can see I'm working with a performing artist a little <laughs> too long here. During halftime fueling. And he's like, well, I can't eat during halftime. Like, just no way. I've never done it. I don't want to do it. It's, you know. And I said, okay, well, how about you just experiment once with just a little bit? Like, just let's just see. And then you don't ever do it again, right? Just, <laughs> just try. Just, you know, I've been doing this a long. Just trust me, right? Which is a hard thing to do. I mean, I don't think that's a light thing to, you know, like, why should I trust you? This is my career. Um, and he tried it. And he's like, I cannot believe <laughs> that I never did this before like I felt so much better clearer and again it's I don't know that it changed his performance because he already was so successful but it changed the toll it took on him to be that successful sure and then it goes back to what we were talking about long-term success right. you know how's that going to affect him you know years from now does it prevent an injury right you know concentration focus ability so what about meal? Do you have suggestions for meal planning or strategies for on the go lifestyles? I know that that's really hard. You know, you know, you, you get to lunch. At, I do this all the time. It's lunchtime. And I think, oh, geez, again, I thought I wasn't going to be hungry yeah. at lunch. <laughs> and, that, you know, you're, you're hitting on a really good point because a lot of eating, um, being able to manage your eating is planning, time management, right? Planning ahead. You're thinking, I just want to know, just tell me what to eat. But it's not just know what to eat. It's like, do you have the food available when you need the food? And that's that's really hard for some people. You know, not everyone is organizationally, uh, like it's it's so unfair that if you're, you're organizationally challenged, you also don't eat well. Like why does that <laughs> have to go together, right? But it's, um, so a lot of what I do is helping with meal planning. Is saying, okay, you know, you have this number of days, this number of meals, Here's what your day looks like. And and there are those who like work a nine to five and right, it's every day. They're like, I didn't think I'd get hungry and I don't have food available. And like you think, well, every other day you have, how come? And then there are those who have different days, you know, their days change every day. But even that, usually like even when I work with students, 
I'm like, you know, mostly, not always, but usually every day may be different, but every Tuesday and Wednesday, like every Tuesday is the same. Every Wednesday is the same. You know, Tuesday you have early class, Wednesday you have late class, you know, Thursday night you have a lab. Like it's, that's not a surprise every Thursday that you have a lab late and can't get to dinner. But every Thursday you go, oh my God, I didn't get to dinner. (laughs) So being able to look at each day and look at the opportunities and when you're going to have your break and when you're going to be able to eat and what can you, you know, so whether it's like you bring lunch or whether it's I stop on the way and I pick up, I pick up, I get my breakfast and I'm also going to get lunch because I know today I can't get out. I look at my schedule or, oh, I hit back to back. So I better, I'm going to eat in the taxi on my way to my next meeting or on the bus or in the subway. You know, like you, if you can look one day ahead and just see what your day is and figure out when you're going to be hungry, because you kind of know, right? I get hungry every three hours. So what are your snacks? Are you going to bring at lunch when you get your lunch? Are you going to have something for that four o'clock, which every day you think you're not going to be hungry and every day at four, you're going over to your colleague who keeps those M&Ms on their desk and somehow they don't eat them, but you do. (laughs) (laughs) So how about if I bring a yogurt and a piece of fruit for four o'clock when I get hungry or, you know, why don't I have a banana and peanut butter available in my, you know, like keep a little drawer of peanut butter on my desk and I pick up a banana in the morning and bring it or whatever, you know, like come up with your five top, you know, easy snack foods. You keep a little thing of oatmeal and all you need is hot water, you know, a little thing of nuts and seeds, whatever. So there's lots of options and you go, oh yeah, why didn't I think of that? Oh yeah, I can do that. Well, what strategies have worked have been have worked for those really organizationally challenged because all that sounds easy and yeah I'm sitting here thinking oh yeah I can do that but you know guaranteed next week I'm gonna forget lunch well that's that's what I do right I mean that's where having but you can even do it with a friend where you're just really I mean is that part isn't you know, that part's organization. Like, do you want to sit with your husband and figure out what's our plan for the week? Who's going to be home? What nights? Where am I going to? It's, it's a time thing. So sometimes sitting with someone else just makes you sit down and do it. Like you can, you can create a weekly schedule of what you're going to eat. Or the flip is you just know that every week you're going to want a snack every afternoon. So what are the five snacks you like? And can you bring them to your office on Monday? So you have it, or do you have it and you pack it the night before? So it's ready in the morning when you're rushing and going late. You don't have to start packing it up, but it's not that complicated. Like if you like little hummus to go and carrot sticks, you know, then you buy the little hummuses and you just take them to go. So, you know, how complicated or easy is based on whether you're going to prepare food or not, or where are the places you go to eat, where are they along your route, right? So, I mean, yes, though, but it does take some effort. It's that upfront effort to help your effort later on. And, and you might not get it 100%. So let's say you get a 50%. So you're 50% better off than you were before. And then you're still scrambling for the other 50% of the meals. But now you got 50% of them. You know, it's incremental. That's okay. It doesn't always, it doesn't have to be perfect. And either does your food, like this other thing I say all the time, is you do not have to eat perfectly to eat healthfully. I think there's this huge pressure and this whole moral self-righteous thing about how people eat these days. And it's like, let's face it, like you don't, that's just, your body's not that fragile. So yes, obviously I, I'm a nutritionist. I'm into helping people sort of eat better because they feel better. It's healthier, but it's not like, it's not like eating. I'm not supporting eating sugar, but it's not like if you eat sugar as part of a whole, whole diet day, you know, whole day's intake. Like you're not gonna. That's you're you're gonna be okay. 
It's okay. It's okay <laughs> if you eat a cookie. Like, don't worry about it. Let's move on. Since we're talking about cookies, I, I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't ask you a question about dieting. Do you have strategies for dieting while being an athlete? I know that's it's so hard to cut calories and remain properly fueled. Right. Um, so a lot of it does, again, go back to that mentality because it's not an all or none. Um, obviously, you're right. It is better if you can manipulate your weight during the off season and not while you're in season. But if you're in season, I would. I, it's so individual, right? Like I've had people where I just have to say, you know, cut out beverages, caloric beverages, and that's the only thing they had to do. And then I have others who it's way more subtle, or it's you know, it's because they're under eating during the day and then they're picking out at night, and we just have to shift their calories down, and that. And that eliminates that overeating at night. And then others, it's way trickier. It's way more subtle. So it's such an individual thing where their extra, where people's extra calories are coming from. And if there's emotional eating involved or, or again, they're taking in too many of these processed foods that could really help you while you're riding, let's say, or, you know, but they, they're like taking in more than they need and they just have to cut back on that or, you know, so it, it I'd love to be general about it, but it really is such an individual thing about where your extra calories are coming from. You also mentioned during the answer, uh, something that I thought was fascinating, too, was this idea of overeating at night, and then you're full in the morning. And so you don't eat yeah. breakfast. And then it just right. ends up this terrible cycle. It is. It's, it's such a cyclical thing. And it, it's so common, especially when people start thinking, I mean, again, there's two, there's well, it's more than two, but there's two kinds of general things I want to say, like one is the person who is always thinking about weight loss and that then preoccupies them. And so that it drives how like, Oh, I'm not going to eat breakfast cause I'm not hungry when I first wake up and I can eat a light lunch. Cause I, I have all this, you know, I'm busy and I'm distracted and, and I can do it, you know, and then it's when they get home and they're relaxed and they're not focused on their day's distractions that they just, they can't use that kind of restraint. Plus they're really hungry. They've had a whole day and then they eat overnight and so, and that's part of like driven from, I'm trying to, I'm trying to lose weight. I'm trying to lose weight. I better not eat as opposed to let me eat so that I'm not starving later and let me be nourished and satisfied and eat a well-rounded meal. And that will actually help me to make better choices for the rest of the day. And then you have the other type of person who's just like busy and disorganized and, um, you know, not really not thinking about food. And then, then when they relax, they're like, wow, I'm really hungry. When I start eating, I realize how hungry I am and they keep going. Right. But both of them, again, it's that nutrient time and figuring out your pattern for the day and when you can eat. So not everyone needs as big a breakfast as the next, but we all will benefit from breakfast. So how hungry and you and right that when you could break that cycle of, you know, when you're not eating late at night, so you could wake up hungry. And that doesn't mean you can't eat anything at night. It just means it's opposed to eating, you know, grabbing a breakfast bar for 150 calories of breakfast and having an anemic salad or something for, you know, it's like, um, you could still eat at night. Let's say have a, again, I'm going to keep going. I don't know why I keep going to yoga, but it's so satisfying. Like it doesn't mean at nine, nine thirty you can't have a purposeful snack that you're having a yogurt and a piece of fruit or you're having, even if it's that's when you're having a cookies and milk, it's not like, you, but it's, but you're not having the row of cookies or the bag of chips. <laughs> right? Or 
a whole other meal or that, that refrigerator surfing where you just start after dinner and keep going till you go to sleep. And then that interferes with sleep. And we sure. didn't really even talk about sleep. You know, that idea of it keeps pushing sleep back when you eat so much at night for many people. And now they're also not sleeping enough, which influences appetite regulating hormones. And that makes it harder the next day. It also interferes with recovery, which interferes with resiliency and um, tissue repair and all those different things. So it's so interrelated. So that, that cycle of eating and sleep are, is, is incredibly crucial to feeling good and, and being, being able to resist, um, you know, both for your immune system and injury prevention. Well, it's been really, really great talking to you again and and, uh, catching up. Thank you. My pleasure. You're doing great stuff. Well, thank you. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. I know it's totally a pain, but please take a moment to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. It really does help the podcast to reach more people and to get the word out about female athletes and women in sports. Just a reminder, Allie's Bar is still available for listeners at 50% off with free shipping using the promo code HERSPORTS. That means a box of 12 are only $14. And they taste great and aren't loaded with sugar. There's been a lot of chat about meal planning. I'm totally terrible at that and often find myself happily saved by an Allie's Bar. Also, check out the new layout of the Hear Her Sports website at hearhersports.com. It has a beautiful landing page featuring a design by Agnes Studio. It's easier to find the podcast you want and to listen directly from the site. Sign up for our newsletter and follow on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Hear Her Sports. See you in two weeks. Hey there, and welcome to the Joy of Paddle podcast, hosted by me, Minter Dial, a veteran of the paddle tennis world, and sponsored by Paddle 1969. Whether you're a paddle tennis aficionado, just beginning, or have never even heard of paddle, or padel, as it's called in North America, this is an exhilarating new show that delves into the captivating stories of notable paddle personalities worldwide. In its inaugural season, you'll be treated to exclusive anecdotes, valuable tips, life lessons, and humorous moments shared by esteemed professional paddle players, industry insiders, and passionate paddle enthusiasts. With each season aligning with the Pro Tour, you can anticipate two engaging episodes per month. The Joy of Paddle Podcast is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, where you can find other great shows in a number of categories, such as sports, health and wellness, true crime, and fiction. To find out more about Evergreen Podcasts, go to www.evergreenpodcast.com. Vamos! Vamos!